Hey everybody, welcome to Conversation Piece with Patrick Armstrong. I am the titular Patrick, and this is a show where we talk about the missing pieces of the conversations we're already having. Shout out to all our returning listeners, and a high five and hello to everyone joining us for the very first time. Thank you so much. For too long, adoptees have not been the authors of our own stories. That's changing, and this month we're joining the discourse to be a part of that change. Together with BIPOC adoptees, we are reclaiming our narratives by honing in on specific areas of the BIPOC adoptee experience that need to be amplified right now. This is a brave space for adoptees to share with the world what we know is needed both inside and outside of our community. These are the BIPOC adoptee conversations. My guest today is a Korean adoptee from Songnam, raised by an Italian family in NYC, and started looking for their identity in 2018 after years of denial, something I can relate to. They are also the secretary for Boston Korean adoptees. It is my honor and privilege to welcome AJ Cho to the show. Hey, AJ, thank you for joining me. Hello. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me here. I always give some prior context for our listeners because generally I am familiar with the guests that I've had on the show so far. But for this series, I've had the privilege of being able to meet new people specifically within our wider BIPOC adoptee community. And this is the first time that we've been able to connect. So thank you for this privilege and honor of your time, your story, and the energy and any wisdom that you might be sharing with us today. I really, really appreciate it. So I know that I introduced you just now and I gave a a little bit of uh, an introduction for you, but for anybody listening who may not know who you are, who AJ Cho is, do you mind sharing just a little bit more about yourself? Um, Yeah, so I live in New England and I'm 38 years old. I grew up in New York City. Then uh, we moved to the the Pocono area of Pennsylvania. It's a very rural kind of resort town. and uh, I went to college there, and now I've been working in education since um, 2011. What do you do in the education space, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I'm an instructional designer, so I work with faculty um, to enhance their courses and create online courses um, with one of the universities here. It's the third university that I've worked with. Okay. How did you find your way into education? When did you know that that was something that you had a lot of passion for? So in college, I started taking piano classes and um, I was skipping all of my regular classes to go play piano instead. (laughs) So I changed my major to uh, music history. And to help myself get through college, I started to teach piano. Um, But it was you know, very little money. I was barely scraping by. And my, my, mu- my music program advisor told me about maybe I should get a master's degree in educational technology. And it, it kind of started from there. Okay. That's very interesting. Um, do you still, are you still a pianist? Do you still play today? No. <laughs> okay. You made that shift from piano player to, to working in that education space. I like that. I think that's interesting for a lot of adoptees. We find ourselves pulled into some sort of creative avenue and we find ourselves, even before we go on these journeys of identity, um, for whatever reason, I think we always have this yearning or some yearning for expression because we're always trying to figure out how to express ourselves in a myriad of different ways. And as we get ready to move into this conversation around, you know, what's missing from this wider BIPOC adoptee experience and the conversations that we have around those experiences, I wanted to get a little bit more context around your story, if you're comfortable and feel safe enough to share. Um, Talked about in your intro, you know, you didn't start your journey of identity until 2018, which I found really interesting because it's two years prior to the pandemic when I feel like a lot of adoptees started to do that, myself included. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that journey and maybe what prompted you to begin that journey in 2018 specifically. Yeah, so in 2011, I moved out of my parents' house. And in 2012 through like 13, 14, I toyed with the idea of getting more into you know, meeting other Korean adoptees to even Mm. see if there were people that existed out there. And I joined the Facebook group. I think it's the the biggest Korean American adoptee Facebook group that's still existing. Um, But when I had joined, there was a lot of older folks in there that were very much of the, 
I don't know. It seemed like the loudest voices in that group were very, um, they were eager to make Asian jokes and pretend that they're not Asian and mm. all of these other kinds of things. And, you know, like I got called a snowflake a bunch of times and I just left the group and I actually deleted my Facebook back then mm. um, for a number of years. So then we moved to, um, my wife and I moved to Massachusetts and um, I don't know, we didn't have any friends out here and I decided to give it another go. But what really happened was um i had never heard of adoptee literature before and someone passed along that um to me that a korean adoptee was writing their memoir and that was um nicole chung's book um all you could ever know okay and i read that and after the i don't know two days it took me to get through that i um had signed up to go to a boston korean adoptees korean cooking class Okay. And it just kind of became a landslide from there. And, you know, like the people that I've met there, I definitely consider them more of my family than the people that adopted me. Sure. So that that's what really brought me down that, that avenue. I appreciate you sharing that. And I find that all you could ever know, and then just Nicole in general, tends to have that effect on people <laughs> from our community. It's like you read that book and for a lot of people, even though I came to it after I had already started this journey, like the book really helped crystallize a lot of things and give words to a lot of things that I had experienced that I just couldn't articulate even, even after having been in community, having found some people that helped me develop language. It still seems like there's something just about the way she writes and the way that she presents her story that really, really resonates. Yeah. Obviously it resonated with you because you devoured it in two days. And then <laughs> you found yourself signed up for the Boston Korean adoptees cooking class. And like, here we are X amount of years later, you are literally an officer for BKA and you work with them as a secretary. So I was wondering if you could talk about, how you came across that specific group, I'm assuming, or because you found yourself in Massachusetts, but how you came across them specifically, and then what your journey's been like with that community. Yes. So you know how Facebook gives you targeted things, right? Yeah. I had joined back up on my Facebook account, and I joined the larger Korean American adoptee group, which by that time, I think the tone of it had definitely changed from when I was in their years before. Okay. Um, and I remember when I joined in, the first thing that I saw was a large conversation about all you could ever know. And I'm like, I, I, I think this group is better now. And from there, <laughs> Facebook recommended me um, the Boston Korean adoptee Facebook group. And I joined it. And the first thing was like a, a cooking class in like two weeks. And I'm like, I'm going. That was it. Amazing. How was that class? It was fantastic. And I, I mean, before that, I had no idea anything about really Korean food. I had, I think I had bibimbap once. Mm. And uh, I don't think I had ever had kimchi before that. Interesting. Yeah, now it's a staple in my fridge. Um, but I from there, like, you know, we had the cooking class and then there's a summer picnic that we do every year. We do an annual chuseok dinner and an annual Lunar New Year dinner. Um, as the pandemic started to um, shut everything down, we started a study group to learn Korean. Uh, and I'm, I, I think of the initial study group, I'm the only one that really kind of stuck with it. I, okay. But I stick with it at my own pace. Like I'm not sure. fluent despite having studied Korean on and off for like four years. One of the hardest languages to learn that I've come to find out scientifically one of the hardest languages. So I'm like, everybody gets yeah. grace. Everybody yeah. gets grace with it. Yeah, it's a cool language, though. Like, I'm I'm really enjoying it. And it's out of any language that I've ever tried to study, it's by far been the one that I've stuck with the longest. I appreciate you sharing that as well. And I so you've been um, involved with BKA for about four years now. Yeah. OK. And then I think what's interesting is that you've been, you know, thinking about or at least dabbling in the idea of not necessarily building community with other adoptees, but at least maybe understanding your own identity as an adoptee for a while. Uh, 2013, 2014, you said you kind of toyed with that idea of meeting folks. 
when you took that break from Facebook because of the experience you had in that larger group, did you do any exploration of your own identity at that point before you came back to Facebook and found BKA? Or was that kind of a period where you're like, what what they what a lot of people call coming out of the fog? I, I like to call it coming to consciousness. Was that like a, uh, kind of stepping back into the fog or stepping back a little bit because of that experience? For a long time, I think I just went back to denying it. Okay. Um, but I knew that something inside me craved it because, mm. so my, my wife is from India. Okay. And, um, when we met and before and after we got married, you know, I, I took a big interest in Indian culture and that sort of a thing. Um, and I learned how to cook some Indian food and, nice. you know, but I had also like taken a trip to Japan and, um, you know, just exploring with different types of, with different cultures and just to see where I fit in sure um, um oh go but ahead. yeah generally speaking i i didn't i kind of put the korean american identity on the back burner okay gotcha and then but the, but you pick that back up in 20 18. so it's 2018 so yeah. um from 2018 till now what have you like how has that journey been for you has it been what, what can you can you walk us through that a little bit yeah, so after I met up with BKA and, you know, I, I, I really started to feel like I found the community. I, I did a couple of those DNA tests. Mm. I found two people that are anywhere from second to fourth cousins. And I mean, by the time you get to fourth cousins, <laughs> you know, who knows? But whatever <laughs> the case is, um, I met the, I've met both of them now in person. Okay. And... I, I when I met them, it felt like like I feel closer to them and that I have a lot more in common than anybody that mm. I could have imagined in my adoptive family. Okay. Um, and it, it it's kind of interesting because as the the more you know, I learned Korean food, I learned Korean language, I met other Korean American adoptees. The more distant I felt from my adoptive family. Sure. Uh, to the point where I don't even know what what snapped but i just i i i mean you know i i stopped talking to a good portion of my family last year okay and since then i've i changed my name from my italian name back to my birth name okay my my last name um and you know i i've been in therapy i was in therapy from about the time i was 11 or 12 until last year and i haven't even thought about reaching out to my therapist like it hasn't even affected me interesting yeah i I think something just deep inside has really been wanting to do that for a long time uh, so when you say do that you are you referring to like moving away from therapy or from breaking away from your adoptive family specifically the adoptive family like growing up i wasn't allowed to like japanese things because i'm not japanese and japan attacked america during world war ii right so it was like all these weird little racist things right you know and i think the one of the last holidays that i spent with my family i i made the comment that i'm not white and i got told well what are you you're nothing Mm. else you are white and i'm like this doesn't work for me anymore Sure. A hundred percent. You got to protect yourself, you know, in those situations. Yeah. I mean, this was post COVID. We were living in a world where like Asian people were being targeted. Um, You know, some of the other people on the, on the BK board um, were being harassed in Boston, which is a pretty progressive city. Mm. Um, You know, people don't generally mess with, with men that aren't boys or old men. Because, you know, like if like that, that's not who a bully goes after. Sure. So I didn't 100%. I didn't really have to deal with that. But, you know, smaller people that I know, it, it was just like, OK, yeah, that that's that's a very real thing. Right. Well, I mean, we saw in the in a lot of the reporting that comes out, like stop API hate and stuff that, you know, women and elderly people were being targeted. Yeah, and I felt the same as you. I really resonate with what you said. You know, like I live in Indianapolis, uh, heart of a red state. Um, 
while progressive in, in terms of being a city, there's still a lot of, you know, it's still predominantly white. There's still a lot of racism and bigotry and stuff that happens. And even myself, who I I coined, you know, I have height privilege. I'm, I'm a tall, I'm a six foot tall. I'm not like real skinny or anything, you know. I feel like that really protected me, even though I carry this Asian face, even though I inhabit this Asian body, which I was seeing literally left and right people being attacked and harassed and all these other kinds of things, violence directed towards them. I did yeah. feel like a sense of privilege of being able to still go out and not necessarily have to worry. But I was looking over both shoulders every time, everywhere I go. I still do that to this day to a degree because I just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And I feel like that interaction with your family, I can resonate with to a certain degree as well, because for me, one of the healing moments of, of with my family was when I voiced the frustration and anger I felt at them and all of the other people that I knew, especially, you know, all my white friends for not recognizing or even checking in on me when all of this was going on. And I had the realization was they don't see me as Asian or see these things being something that would affect me because I never saw myself like that. You know, I rejected that identity. I was in denial for all those years until I was 30. And so I, I understand it to a degree, but it doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't make the anger doesn't make the anger unjust or doesn't make any of the feelings that I have invalid. It's right. simply, are you going to be willing to recognize in yourself the shortcomings, not only from our whole adoption, but now, like everything that's happening now, or is this going to be something that I have to cut off? And so I commend you for recognizing that within your own family dynamic and being able to make the really difficult decision, I think, to step away and to go no contact or at least to set up those boundaries to where you're not going to have those interactions anymore. Because at the end of the day, as adoptees, again, I talked about, you know, the whole point of the series is we've not been the authors of our own stories, of our own experiences. And when we finally get the chance to do that, even people that are the people that are closest to us are generally the ones that are most offended and become the most defensive about us making that decision. And it becomes that much harder for us to not only own our story, but then to make decisions for ourselves because we feel like we have to manage everybody else's feelings and expectations. When in reality, we shouldn't have to do that. And we don't have to. And so again, commend you for being able to take that step. I think it's really important for folks to hear both adoptees and non-adopted people, because that's a lived experience that a lot of people don't hear about. And when they do hear about it, they go, oh, that's the outlier. That's, you know, well, you're ungrateful. They throw all these labels because of the dominant narrative of adoption that we live under. And I think that's a good segue into why we're here today to have this conversation about what's missing. I think you bring a really unique perspective, not only because of your own lived experience, but because you've been in community and you've been experiencing the community for a, a, a lot longer amount of time than I think a lot of us have who have come to consciousness during the pandemic. And so I want to ask you, you know, what piece of this conversation or what pieces of this conversation around the BIPOC adoptee experience do you think are missing right now? I think it doesn't feel safe enough for people that are considering divorcing their family. Mm. It, does, it doesn't feel that it's, it's a very difficult thing to explain to other people, but also just to justify to yourself, because I feel like you're brought up, you know, and being told that you should be grateful for this and grateful for that, while simultaneously being denied the experience that you're living, mm. being gaslit into being told that you're you're imagining it, right? That right. The, the racism doesn't exist and that you're not the identity of the body that you fit in. Right. And you know, for a transracial adoptee to say, you know, I am, I am, I don't want to just single out white adoptive parents here, but, you know, if, if you are of one race or one ethnicity and you're raised in, into a family of a different and they're trying to make it so that you have to deny the existence of the body that you're given, mm. you know, it, it, growing up in that kind of a situation makes, any thought of, hey, I really need to do this for myself, it makes it really difficult. And I think that more conversations, more people saying that it's okay to go ahead and do that mm. is needed. 
Because if that's what you need, I think that is something that you should do. A hundred percent. You're absolutely right. I think that is one, something that we don't talk about very much at all, because it is a really difficult thing to explain and to justify to yourself. And because we are wrapped up in this, in this, we have like a really unhealthy relationship with gratitude. I think not just as adoptees and adoptive families, but as a society as a whole, you know, I think we feel entitled to this gratitude from other people for something that we may have done when we really haven't earned it. Um, And I think that's the dynamic that comes into play a lot in specifically transracial adoptee adoptive families, because there is, like you said, this imbalance of power from a cultural perspective and you are then forced to assimilate into a culture that is not your own, but that you've been made to believe is supposed to be, and that there is no problem with that. And that falls not only on the shoulders of adoptive parents, but I think on the agencies and the the system itself. And so you talked about, you know, that one instance that really made you that clicked in your mind, okay, I gotta get out of here, like, I gotta put that wall up. Can you talk about if you feel comfortable enough to share some of the things that you were thinking and feeling, and maybe even one or two experiences that you had leading into that moment that really set you up to be able to make that decision when that moment happened. If I was going to point to a specific event that led to that, it actually has nothing to do with adoption. Okay. It has something to do with just general annoyance. I, I said previously that I don't talk to my family. And when I mean that, I mean, specifically, my um, my adopted mother's side of the family. Okay. My father's side is a little bit interesting. Uh, they're divorced, and I still talk to my father, but nobody else in his family. Okay. Okay. My, my, my dad lives an hour and a half drive from me, and uh, my mother lives five hours from me. And... Um, Without getting into too spe- too many specifics, basically, my dad was having medical issues, and I had to say that I was skipping Mother's Day because, you know, sure. potential kidney failure failure comes is more important. And the argument was about that, hmm. but it allowed me to be frustrated enough where I thought about all of these other little things, like you know, like. When I said before, I wasn't allowed to like Japanese things. It, it was right. such a stupid thing, right? But, um, you know, I realized that the reason we moved out of New York City, um, regardless of whatever she said, the reason was because minorities were moving in. Mm. And then I, I thought about it, and I, I was just thinking about all the things that she said that she had to say about Obama being a black president and um, the... The uh, Hispanic woman that my uncle was dating and um, that my wedding was a mixture of Indian celebrations and American celebrations with no religious okay. things like that. And then I got accused of having um, a, a foreign wedding. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we only had one or two ceremonies that were like Indian in nature. It wasn't a six-day event with a thousand people. Right. So... You, you know, like all of these really extreme things. A couple of years ago, we had gone to Dubai for New Year's. And I don't know, she was saying something about me getting recruited by ISIS and all of stuff about terrorism. And it was just like all of these things just like came to the forefront. And I'm like, I'm done with this. I, sure. I This is the most toxic thing in my life right now. And that's how it had to end. I really appreciate you sharing that. And one, I'm sorry that you had to experience all those things. I can't believe that you (laughs) held out as long as you did. And I think that speaks to the toxicity of the, uh, that can exist within the transracial adoptive family dynamic right there is that all of these things were happening Mm -hmm. and you were still holding on to something, whatever it might be. Even if you were like already nearing the cusp of being like, okay, I'm out of here. Like there's still something that pulls you there because I think for me, I name it as like, we don't want to go through a rejection again. Like we already went through it being adopted. Well, because if we don't know the circumstances, right? like we've already had that experience. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about that when you were talking before, 
you know, like I think another thing that holds us back, even though the whole, the, despite the whole narrative of having to feel grateful and all of mm. this other thing, it is that that trauma, right? The right. the the whole separation situation. Like, do you want to be rejected again? Right. But when I thought about it differently, I thought about it. This time, I'm not being rejected. This time, they're being rejected. Right. So. Well, we move from like being passive and being the recipient of re the rejection to us owning it again, like owning our story, owning our own existence and us taking the initiative and saying, no, I'm not, I'm not being rejected. I am the one actively doing the rejection because it's not healthy or safe for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one kind of a side thing that I was thinking about, um, I, I do, I am one of the fortunate people that I have, I think all of my adoption paperwork. Okay. And I noticed that the only thing that came up about culture in any way, shape, or form was this tiny little disclaimer that just both of my parents signed that said, I am not racist. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a little bit more than that, but it was like more legal sounding, like I promise to not judge people by XYZ thing. But that was it. That was the whole thing about culture at all. And, you know, I remember growing up, one of the things that, um, you know, I do remember that my adoptive mom was, would try to tell me, hey, you should look more, you should look into being Korean more and this mm. and that. But, you know, I mean, I was seven, eight, nine, ten 10 in the 90s. Like we didn't have the internet. How, how do I do my own research on this? Right. Right. How can you expect a 10 year old to do research? You can't. I work in a college and I can't expect college students to do their own research. Right. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. That's the the advice I always give to adoptive parents whenever they ask, particularly white adoptive parents. It's like the question is, how do I make sure the, the adoptee in my life is connected to their culture? I want to make sure that they have this so they don't experience what you experience. And I'm like, well, at the end of the day, you can't force somebody to do it. Like, right. That's that's going to drive them away quicker than if you were doing it the right way. And I don't necessarily know that there's a right way, but the two pieces I always say is one, you have to give them the opportunities to engage, even if they say no, like the opportunity has to be there. It's not a forced opportunity. It's just like, Oh, Hey, there's this thing going on. If you're interested. Oh, Hey, there's this thing. And even if they say no, which is probably going to happen, that's okay. And two, you got to be actively engaging in that yourself. So that way you can model that one, you're willing to learn about this culture as well. And two, that it's not bad or gross or weird or different or wrong to be Asian or to be whatever your culture that your, your adoptee's culture of origin is. Like, yeah. if we're not, if you're not doing that, then why would we ever, why would that adoptee ever feel like that's something to be okay with? Why would they ever not move towards assimilation to being different, to rejecting their identity? Because there's no modeling happening. And so right, there's right, no right. way for us to ever realize or think about or or engage or even want to engage because the opportunity is not there. And we don't see our adoptive families, our adoptive parents specifically engaging in that stuff with us. And so, or, or for themselves even. So I think that's really important. Um, I really appreciate you naming all of those events that happened that built up to the point of you going through this divorce with your adoptive family. Uh, because, I think it's really important for other adoptees to hear those things because I think it's easy for us to move past or look past them. If we don't hear somebody else, like you said, speaking those things into existence as having been the reasons for this divorce to happen. And I really love that language, divorcing your adoptive family. I think divorce carries that negative connotation um, just because I think the way it's been portrayed in society and particularly with religion, but it's it, it like, it's something that happens. It's like a, a thing that happens and that's okay. And I think it's a good language to use for this particular experience as well. Um, for folks within the adoptee community who maybe have like myself, a positive adoption experience who haven't went through that particular process and may not go through it. How do we support adoptees who are either on their way there or have already went through it? How do we support y'all and make sure that we are addressing this particular part of the conversation when we may not share that specific lived experience within our own journeys. I think you're doing it right now. Okay. 
providing an opportunity, a non-judgmental opportunity for people to speak on it. And with the understanding that while you, this is not your lived experience, it's still a valid experience. I, I think that's the most important thing because honestly, I've never met a met another Korean adoptee who, well, I'm not going to say never. I haven't in recent years met another Korean adoptee who wasn't at least sympathetic and willing to hear me out without judgment. Mm. I love that. Um, I will say, I will amplify what you were saying about hearing other people's stories. Because like I said, I wouldn't have gone down this path had it not been for Nicole Chung's book. Mm. I wouldn't have... um, I wouldn't have thought that changing my name would be an option um, until someone I follow on Instagram that I just happened to follow on Instagram by accident. Sure. Um, and uh, I, I think I actually followed her because she was going through the name transition. Okay. And uh, I was like, I want to learn more about this. So I did. And that's what happened there. Um, so, yeah, I think... Making people feel like they're not alone is mm. the most important thing. Okay, I love that. I think that's great. Yeah. Earlier, you were talking about what can adoptive parents do? So the first thing that you said was provide the opportunity, but I also think that it's important to also provide the tools mm. for them to take you up on that opportunity at their own pace. Sure. A hundred percent. Right. So maybe they don't want to, they don't want to do it now because I get that, you know, being growing up, sometimes it just, you imagine that it would be easier to just fit in with everyone else. And you right. don't, you want to ignore that you're adopted because that when you're a kid, you don't see the complexities of that relationship that you have with society. Right. And, you know, um, there's a graphic novel that just came out, Sarah Meyer's Monstrous. You have it? I got it right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I related to that book so much. I related to her story so much. Growing up, I used to love to draw, too. And I was mm. always considered an, a weirdo because, you know, I liked comic books and video games and none of my friends did. Mm. So it, it was like, it just hit so hard. For sure. Um, But, you know, like... I relate to just wanting to fit in. Yeah. And when you're a kid, the idea of doing your own research to try to figure out your identity is seems too daunting of a task. Yeah. You'd rather just escape into what you were saying before, right? Creative pursuits. Right. It, it's it's a much better way for you to cope with it at that age, given the tools you have, the limited tools that you have as a kid. So I think just, even not necessarily providing the tools right then and there, but always making it like, here's an open door. I will help you no matter what, whenever you're ready, I think is really important. I really appreciate you sharing that answer. One for specifically for adoptees like myself, who are trying to make sure that we're being mindful of all these different experiences. I think you can't do any better than just sitting and listening to somebody else's experience, amplifying that voice and really decentering yourself from the conversation, because it's not always about your I talk about this all the time. When we come to consciousness, it's really, really easy, I think, for us to be like, it's all about me now. <laughs> like, I get it. I get the chance to own my own story. Yes, let me. I, I just want to talk about my experience. And that's totally valid. I think it, it, it's necessary for us to be able to to have spaces to be able to share, those brave spaces to to be able to articulate and find the articulation. And also, we have to be able to realize, okay, it's we are one one thread in this much larger fabric that we're a part of. And that's not even just like our own ethnic subgroup of being like Korean adoptees, but, you know, just being part of the entire adoptee community, which then itself is a part of the entire group of communities that are out there, identities that exist. And when we can, when we can find the balance of telling our own stories and facilitating and, and listening to other people's stories, I think that's when the, the, the magic happens for lack of a better phrase. Um, with in terms of validation in terms of visibility in terms of representation and in terms of what we can do 
for our communities as individuals and as a collective group. And I really love what you shared about what adoptive parents can do and how you you went a layer deeper than what I normally go about making sure that the opportunity is always there, that you're providing the opportunity and that you're open about it, that it's always open and you're going to support. I think that's a really important thing to name because I think it's, again, easy for somebody to just, and that's why I always talk about the modeling piece of it, because I think it's easy for somebody to say, here's the opportunity and then just leave it at that. You know, it doesn't really feel supportive. It doesn't really feel like that's what you want me to do. It feels like more like, oh, you're just saying that because you might've heard it somewhere. And there's a difference between learning something and implementing it and then just hearing something and just passing it on as secondhand knowledge. I think there's a big difference in that. So I appreciate you sharing that. I just thought of something else related to that. One thing that I think might be valuable and maybe I'm maybe I'm off base here, but I think that if you want to do something immersive with your adopted child, don't make it a, a special thing. I think if my parents had... And and they wouldn't have done this because they don't like spicy food. But um, if they had said, hey, we're going to get Korean food, aren't you excited? Like, and made this big thing out of it, I wouldn't want to go. Right. But if we're just like, hey, we're going out, out to get dinner and it happened to be Korean and it felt like that, whatever. Right. A hundred percent. It actually makes me think of, and I've been sharing this experience a lot lately, but when I was really young, my parents took me to like a Korean convention in in Indianapolis. And I don't remember what happened there, but I just remember that I didn't like being there. It felt foreign, you know, for lack of a better word, it felt very foreign to me. And it just wasn't what I wanted to do. My parents clocked that as being like, why would we ever take him to any other Korean stuff or Asian stuff? You know, he doesn't like it. And it's like, I don't know if they were making it a big deal, per se. But even just being put in that situation, and then me reacting the way that I did, like, set the foundation and set the tone for what our relationship was going to be. And that's why I talk about, you know, not only providing the opportunity, but actively engaging yourself. Because if you clock it as, oh, that's if you do one thing, and you're and the adoptee is like, no, that's not my thing. Like, you can't, it's, maybe not giving up, but you can't just stop. Like you have to continue moving forward because again, I was like maybe eight years old. What do I know as an eight year old? I'm still figuring it it out. It might've just been overwhelming (laughs) for you. A hundred percent. You know, and I don't, I don't, I'm not accusing your parents. I I don't know anything about your parents. I'm not going to accuse them of anything, but I think that there are some people that might do that some adoptive parents that innately just don't want to do any of this and they're going to use that as an excuse. Oh, hey, great. Mm. I don't have to do this anymore. Sure. I wiped my hands sure. with it. I tried. I think that's a great point. I think yeah. that's a great point. And yeah, I don't think necessarily that was what my parents' intent was, but I can 100% see that being like adoptive parents going out of their way to do something cultural because they want their child to say, no, I don't want to do that. And then, yeah. like you said, lets them off the hook. Yeah, and you're and you're talking about like a whole festival, right? Yeah, I don't even really remember. I re- I don't even really remember what it was. I remember it was like I felt like it was in this big convention center. That's like that my memory. I remember like walking in, and then I think I just disassociated and just walked out. Honestly, that could have just been overwhelming, and it had nothing to do with whether or not you liked it. It could have just been like this is a lot to take in, and that's why it feels foreign. Right. Right. Exactly. If it was more bite sized, if it was like, you know one little one music thing or right one thing at a time well and i think that's the problem growing up in a very small rural conservative town is that one and then and growing up in the 90s like one there is no other person of color or even especially asian people person that i can like see mirrored in my reflection in and two there's limited access to any of that anyways, any, yeah. any cultural things to even like piecemeal it out like that, you know, to like, to, to here's like one little piece of music or here's like a, Oh, a K drama. If I don't even think those existed in the nineties, like whatever it might be, you know, just those little specks of culture to like walk down and, and build up to instead of, you know, you have to go to a big city, you have to go and do it's like everything at once, because how often are you going to those cities? They're three hours away. You know, you don't have, you get one day, you yeah. get one moment to do all this. So, and I would say in a lot of adoptive parents' minds, it's like, if they're not doing it for the really manipulative, malicious way, it's like, this is the only chance we got. And, That's fair. 
and you know like in this and this is what happens and it's like well you know we're not gonna waste our time going back there again and i i hope it's more like that and it's just like a lack of access and ignorance i don't think that that's the case anymore i think i don't think that there's an excuse for that anymore especially if you're adopting uh transracially um or internationally like there is way too much access to everything you can literally access everything at the tip of your fingers on your phone and so yeah and there are adoptees (laughs) like yourself and myself who are talking about these things now yeah it's amazing though that like you know when i first read all you could ever know and i i looked at the what are the the reviews on amazon Mm -hmm. some of them were really interesting they were like um you know i guess she's ungrateful and Mm. she she changed her name and all of this and i'm like you're still you still have no idea right you didn't you didn't read the book you you use the book to confirm your judgment. You didn't read it. A hundred percent. I think that's a great point and a great segue to this next question. How do people just generally outside of the adoptee community go about supporting, amplifying, elevating our stories? And and maybe not even that far, but just like listening and, and developing an empathy or a better understanding of our experiences. I'm not a person that believes you can change society overnight. Mm. But I think that the one biggest thing that I think would perhaps even go as far as saving lives, preventing people from taking their life, is to get rid of the narrative that adoptees need to be grateful. Mm. And I don't know how to go about doing that. I don't know if if it's just a matter of repeating it over and over again. I don't know if it's a matter of being aggressive and angry about it. But I think that gratitude narrative is the worst narrative because it immediately denies someone's lived experiences. Mm. I think you bring up a powerful correlation between the gratitude narrative, this narrative of gratitude, this dominant narrative of adoption, and this fact of life about our community is that we're dying from this narrative. And like, it's not because people are coming out and killing us like black people, like that we're not being killed by police because we're adopted. We are taking our own lives because we are so invalidated. So pushed to the side and to the margins because we have something opposite to what everybody believes adoption to be that we can't cope in certain ways. And there are people in our community who can't cope with it. And yeah. the only answer and, and, and outlet that they see is to unalive themselves and to go down that path. And that's the fucking, excuse my language, but the most, you're right. That is that you can't even, I can't even articulate how harmful it is. And people just don't know that they don't yeah. know that that exists in our community. Yeah. And it comes from things like, you know, if I if I were to express, uh, hey, I I got harassed because, you know, someone said that I brought the China virus over here, and like I I got harassed by a bunch of people in a bar one night, you know, that's invalidated because then they'll be like, well, aren't you grateful you were adopted? You could have been left in a garbage can, and it's right. like these things have nothing to do with each other. Nope, they have nothing to do with each other. So when you're growing up hearing that I should be hearing that you should be grateful for this, for that. And hearing things like, you know, when the school and the playground bully picks on you, is it better than being homeless and abandoned in an orphanage somewhere? You internalize that. Yep. So when something does happen where life does get too hard for you and that happens to everybody, you know, the pressures of life are immense, Uh, whether it be, money problems or family problems or, you know, your spouse is dying or, you know, I have no money and I got into a car accident. Now I can't get to work. Whatever your issues are, life is hard. Yep. And then to have this internal feeling of that you need to be grateful for this. It sucks. Right. Because how do you reconcile that for that gratitude with all of these terrible things that you're feeling that everybody else is telling you and then telling you is not real. You're not feeling that you're not experiencing that you should only be grateful. Right. And the fact that you are experiencing these negative feelings is on you. That's your own problem. 
how are you supposed to like, how are you ever supposed to navigate that to pull yourself out of that isolation? Yeah. Earlier, I said that I was I had seen a therapist since I'm like 11 or 12 or something. And it was because I told my seventh grade teacher that I was going to kill myself. Damn. Yeah. And I realized that doing that as I got older, I realized that doing therapy sessions with someone who was willing to listen to me was the only way that I was able to relieve just the pressure of everyday life. So I kept doing it. A hundred percent. I mean, and here you are today able to have this conversation. You have given us an education in what it means to be adopted, what other people outside of this community can do to help just understand this experience a little bit better. So that way, maybe we can dispel some of these myths that exist around us. So that way we can actually build a true resistance and dismantling of this gratitude narrative that we live under. And it is so, so important that we have this conversation today because as, as, as soon as somebody hears this, you know, I can't, I can only hope that if they are feeling that type of isolation, if they are feeling like they are alone, that they can hear, oh, I'm not, and be able to start walking back a little bit and walking into their own power and being able to find themselves in who they truly are and know that their experience is valid. Not that all of the negative things that they have feeling are invalid, but that they are truly valid and that there, are, there, is, there is good that can come out of this and there is always good within the person. Like yeah. there's always good that can be pulled out of that person. And so I really appreciate everything that you shared and all of this knowledge that you shared with us, because at the end of the day, it's going to help somebody. It's going to help so. somebody in our community who, who really needs it. I hope so. I mean, when I first found adoptee groups, Korean adoptee groups specifically, um, I, I gradually grew more comfortable with the idea that, Hey, I can, say something that's on my mind i can mm. bring up an issue that only these other people can relate to mm. and you know as i i ventured out into more transracial adoptee not necessarily korean adoptee and i found sure. it was the same yeah it was the same all of us that there are people that will listen to you without judgment and nowadays it's easier to find that than ever right um I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of social media. I don't like what a lot of these companies do with my data. Yeah. I don't like what the DNA companies did, do with my data. No, definitely but not. the value that I get from these platforms helps me realize that there are people out there that are like me. It gives me a sense of community mm. and you can have my data. I, I don't care. That community can save your life 100%. AJ, I, I, again, can't thank you enough for everything that you shared with us, for unpacking your story a little bit, and then just, again, just giving us this education because it is so important and to, and to, to let people out there feel seen and heard and to know that they're not alone and that they can, there are people out there that will listen. I think that's a really important thing takeaway from this conversation. Um, when we do stuff like this, when we have conversations like this, and when we're dropping knowledge left and right, it, it is labor. It's emotional, mental, physical labor for us to do this. And it's important for us to not always be doing the educating, but to find time to educate ourselves. So who are you learning from right now? Who's giving you inspiration? Who's somebody that's helping you reframe your perspective on things? Most recently, it was definitely monstrous. I really love that book. Um... I mean, I work in education. When I think of learning, I think of a for more formal situation or research mm, or that kind sure, of a sure, thing. Sure, 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 sure. But honestly, I mean, being part of the Boston Korean Adoptees Board, um, listening to other people, reading what people post in different Facebook groups or on different social medias about adoption, um, you know, even if I'm not necessarily studying it, I'm still learning from it. I'm learning right. about people's experiences. You know, I'm learning today. Today is the first time I'm ever doing a podcast interview and I'm, I'm learning from it, right? So I think it's important to always continuously learn and not right. just in the academic sense. I appreciate your time, your energy, and your wisdom and the fact that this is the first podcast interview you've done. That is a huge honor for me, a huge privilege for me. Again, one of the things I've learned from podcasting is the privilege of storytelling. 
we take for granted way too often that somebody tell us everything about themselves, even when we meet them for the first time. And we feel entitled to that information for some reason. And we shouldn't. It is a huge privilege for us to ever learn anything about anybody else. And the fact that you shared so much today, and this being the first time that you've hopped on a podcast to do so is a huge privilege for me and something that I don't take lightly or for granted. And I, I just can't thank you enough. Again, appreciate your time and your energy for being on the show and for being a part of the series. I think it's really important. So thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Last question, and then I'll let you go. For everybody out there listening, for me, for the audience, how do we support you best moving forward? I don't think about that that very often. A lot of people don't. Um, when I have needed support, I have found that the best thing that anybody could do is listen. Mm. Not everybody needs advice. Not everybody needs you to solve their problem. Mm. But I do believe that everybody needs someone that will listen to them without judgment. Love it. I think that's perfect. And I couldn't agree more. Again, AJ, thank you so much for everything that you've shared here on the show. I guess I will ask you one other question. Um, I'll link in the show notes if you want, but if people wanted to connect you, with you, can they connect with you? How do they connect with you? Is it best through BKA or is there another way? Um, I do have an Instagram. It's private. Okay. Um, BKA is probably the best way. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, feel free to link my Instagram and, right. um, you know, I'll just accept people as people come in, I guess. Sounds good. Well, everybody, we will have AJ's Instagram linked down in the show notes. We will also have BKA linked in the show notes as well. The website, the Instagram, everything. So you can get connected with them if you're interested. And just remember, listen, come meet us with, with empathy and, and, and with an open heart and mind. And if you do need help, know that you can ask for that and it's okay. You can ask for it and you have people out here that are listening without judgment who, if they can, will do what they can to help. So AJ, again, thank you so much, everybody out there. If you want to connect with us on Instagram, you can do so at Conversation Podpiece. If you do feel inclined to leave a rating or review wherever you've been listening or watching this at, we would greatly appreciate it. And last but not least, if you're interested in supporting the show in any way in the future, feel free to hop in our DMs or visit our website, conversationpeacepod.com. Until next time, I'm Patrick Armstrong, and this has been Conversation Peace. Thanks, AJ. Thank you.